0: Good morning church, I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this morning to the book of Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, if you're looking on one of our pew Bibles, it's going to be page 948. We're going to spend the next two weeks in Romans chapter 14 as we continue our series this morning on biblical community and I'm going to begin reading here in just a moment in verse 1. How many of you, if given the opportunity, would love the chance to talk to a younger version of yourself? What would you say? What advice might you give? What would you encourage you to do differently to think differently? I, I, I wonder if your goals would be the same. I wonder if your priorities would be the same. I wonder if your convictions would be the same. No doubt such was probably the case for Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You've probably heard me mention that name before. I've quoted him often in sermons. Lloyd-Jones is one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. He served for 30 years at Westminster Chapel in London. But prior to all of that, in March of 1924, When in his early 20s, a young Lloyd-Jones shared some personal convictions in an essay he wrote. Some some firmly held beliefs that he had in a way that I'm sure he would regret later in life. Here's what he said. I cannot possibly understand a man who wears silk stockings or even godly colored socks, rings, wristwatches, shoes instead of boots, or who carries a cane in his hand. He goes on to say, The modern method of installing a bath in each house is not only a tragedy, but has been a real curse to humanity. If I had to spend a lifetime with a companion who had one bath a day, or with one who had one bath a year, I should unhesitatingly choose the latter, because a man's soul is more important than his skin. Again, he writes, When I enter a house and find that they have a wireless apparatus, and by that he means a radio, (laughs) I know at once that something is wrong. Your radio may do you wonders. It may enable you to hear the voice of America, but believe me, it will never transmit the only voice that is worth listening to. How many of you would enjoy having a young Lloyd-Jones over to your house (laughs) or as a member of your church? Or your small group. Here is a man of great conviction. Convictions that perhaps seem a bit odd to us. They seem a bit strange to us. Maybe even a bit extreme to us. Convictions about things. My guess is that you and I would most likely disagree. What are we to do when Christians disagree? How about in the church, how does a church maintain its its unity when there is so much diversity among us? because I mean, if you just look around the room, you see that by and large, for the most part, we are a pretty diverse group of people. We come from different backgrounds, we have different upbringings, we all have differences in our opinions and in our preferences and in our convictions and so so then, how does a church stay together? How does it maintain its unity when we differ so much from one another? Can can there really be unity among diversity? And what are we to do then with all of these strongly held differences? Well, one solution would be that we simply create all different kinds of churches, right? That's one solution. I mean, you've seen it. The cowboy church, the hipster church. The vegan church, those actually are probably the same. The black church, the white church, the Asian church, the political church, the traditional church, the contemporary church, for you introverts, we even got one, the online church, right? We got one for everybody. Everybody. Because that would make it a lot easier, wouldn't it? It sure would make things much more comfortable. I mean, we could easily much more get along if we just created a church around our own preferences and our own opinions and our own convictions and our own personal interests because then there can be unity. It sounds great, right? There's just one problem with that solution and here it is. There is absolutely nothing spiritual about it. Nothing spiritual supernatural about it. Nothing gospel shaped about it. But in Romans chapter 14 we discover this morning the apostle Paul's answer to that question of how a church maintains its unity even among its diversity. And Paul's answer, beloved, it is much much more compelling. It is much more supernatural. In fact, it's much more glorifying to God. Let's see what the Apostle Paul has to say. I would invite you, as is our custom, if you can stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord, Romans chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables, Church, this is the word of the Lord. May God bless the public reading and preaching of his word. You can be seated this morning. Well, it's important to remember that Paul's letter to the church at Rome, it was written to a pretty diverse group of people. This was a very cosmopolitan church, because after all, it was a church that was made up of both Jews and Gentiles, whose background had very little in common. And so it was quite diverse. And here in Romans chapter 14, we get a picture of just how diverse they really were. The the differences among these believers, they were no small thing. And yet, from the very beginning of this letter, Paul has been on a mission. In fact, you could say that it's one of the purposes of the letter to the Romans. He has been on a mission to show the unity this church shares in the gospel, even among its diversity. For example, in chapter 1, verse 16, we we see that this gospel, the good news of salvation, is both for Jew and Gentile, where Paul says... I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That both Jew and Gentile are in need of salvation because both Jew and Gentile are under sin. Chapter 3, verse 9. None is righteous. No, not one, we all stand unrighteous. Or chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Both Jew and Gentile stand together in sin, unrighteous before a holy God. And yet at the same time, in verse 23, Paul says, both Jew and Gentile are also justified by His grace as a gift. That salvation in Christ is a gift from God that is based only on His grace. It isn't based on one's ethnicity. It isn't based on one's background or upbringing or religious activity or works. No, brothers and sisters, it is based only on God's grace. And thus, both Jew and Gentile are Recipients of grace both stand united together in grace, a a common salvation they stand in justified before God that has united them to Christ and now also has united them to one another in the church. However, amidst all of this glorious gospel unity that they share, there are still, however, differences among them. Their backgrounds... Customs, opinions, convictions—I mean, this was one diverse church, and this diversity it was causing problems in this church. However, rather than simply telling them to deny all of those differences, or or, or rather than simply telling them to rid the church of any diversity, in chapter fourteen, the apostle Paul here has a different word for this church and. Brothers and sisters, I think it's a word that you and I need to hear as well. It's a word for this church. It's a word for Second Baptist Church. As we think about what it looks like to live life together in this community. How how will we stay together? How will we get along? How will we preserve our unity when we differ? And in doing so, bring glory to God. Three questions I want you to see this morning to I think will help us get our arms around this text, but because before we can I think understand that the issue though that's going on in this church and Paul's solution into that problem, we need to first understand who it is Paul describes as the weak and the strong. So question number one Who are the weak and who are the strong? Well, Romans chapter 14, verse 1, all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, it really forms one unit, and in this section, Paul is addressing two different groups of people within this church, those whom he calls there in verse 1, weak in faith, and by contrast, those he refers to as strong in faith. Notice there, verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. But then if you look down, chapter 15, verse 1, Paul will say, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. So you see here the contrast between two different groups of people in this particular church, between the weak, Paul says, and the strong. And yet Paul's exhortation to both of these groups, it's, it's really the same, because notice there, again, chapter 14, verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. The strong are to welcome the weak. Or look down, chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another. The command to both the strong and the weak is that they welcome one another. Why? Because Paul is aware that these diversities These differences between the strong and between the weak, they have the potential to cause serious division in this church. And thus, he says, despite their differences, verse 1, they are to welcome one another. And so in order for us to understand that command and and really to, to feel the weight of that command... And even to understand how we then can apply that command, I think think we need to first answer the question, who are the weak and who are the strong? What does it mean, first, to be weak in faith? Well, note here that this weakness in verse 1, it has nothing to do with a person's character. It's not about one's tendency to sin. This isn't a moral weakness, These aren't here vulnerable Christians who are easily overcome by temptation. That's that's not what Paul means here when he says weak in faith. Nor is this weakness sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't commend the weak as he does in this passage. No, this is not a sinful Christian. This is not even a susceptible Christian. No, rather, listen, this is a sensitive Christian. This is a Christian who has a sensitive, or you could say weak, conscience. That this person's conscience compels them either to do or not to do certain things. Like what? Well, notice verse 2. Like, eat meat. One person, he says, believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only Vegetables. The weak here, notice, are constrained by their conscience to abstain from certain things. The issue here is one of abstinence. The weak abstained from eating meat. And you see this contrast in verse 2, notice where he says they eat only vegetables. You see even more clearly, notice down in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that would cause your brother to stumble. So, apparently, the weak here were those who abstain from eating meat or, as we see, drinking wine. And instead, notice verse 2, they ate only vegetables. So, the weak in faith were those who abstained. And notice as well in verse 5, the weak, he describes, are those who bound by their conscience keep certain days. Look what he says, verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Or verse 6, they observe certain days. So Notice here that the weak in faith also, apparently, observed and they regarded certain days with special significance. This is the weak brother. So then by contrast, what does it mean to be strong in faith? Well, look there again, verse 2. The strong in faith believes he may eat anything. So in contrast here to his weak brother... Verse 2, the strong are able to eat anything with a clear conscience. And, and rather than observing certain days as more significant than another, verse 5, the strong esteem all days alike. They, they make no distinctions. All days were considered the same to them. So then the question is, okay, who are these weak and who are these strong? Well, scholars speculate but it seems that most likely the weak here that he's referring to were Jewish converts to Christianity. Douglas Moo in his commentary writes that the weak were Jewish Christians or probably also Gentile God-fearers, God-fearers meaning Gentiles who converted to Judaism and now they've converted to Christianity, who believed that they were still bound by certain requirements of the Mosaic law. So in other words... The weak here were those who had converted to Christianity, they had believed the gospel, their their conscience, though, however, was still held captive to certain Old Testament laws and regulations. Like, for example, verse 2, eating only vegetables. That, That even though Jesus, if you remember, he had pronounced all foods clean, perhaps they abstained from eating all meat because they feared that... Maybe perhaps it wasn't kosher, it was unclean, or that it had been sacrificed to idols, as we see Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. But whatever the case, they abstained. And in verse 5, notice, they also observed certain days. Most likely, these would have included the Sabbath, these would have included Passover, these would have included any of the Jewish festivals annually. Though these Jewish converts had come to Christ, even though they possessed, listen, new covenant faith, their conscience was still bound to certain Old Testament laws and certain Old Testament regulations, and so they still kept them. They abstained, and they observed. And we see very clearly that this Weakness, what it means in First Corinthians chapter 8. I want you to look there with me for just a moment. We see what this weakness means. This is a similar but not the same situation Paul's addressing in 1 Corinthians 8. Turn forward one book. Verse 6, Paul says, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. And so you see here this connection, notice, between... A lack of knowledge that they have, conscience, and weakness. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that the weak brothers were lacking certain knowledge. They they hadn't quite grasped these new covenant realities. They, they, They couldn't yet quite get their arms around all of the freedoms that they now had in Christ. And so then, when the weak brother went to the men's breakfast, and he saw bacon on the table, it felt wrong. Or when Passover came around each year, it made him uncomfortable with the thought of not celebrating it. Because after all, all of these old covenant food laws and festivals, they had been ingrained into his mind from a very early age. I mean, after all, this is what you do. This is what piety actually looks like. And so, these were real Christians... Who understood the grace of God in Christ, and yet they hadn't come to a full understanding of what some of this new covenant implications meant. And so they were weak in faith. Well, on the other hand, those strong in faith, they had no such convictions. They were free in Christ. They, They could confidently eat anything without it bothering their conscience. No days were different in their minds. Some perhaps were like the Apostle Paul, who had come out of Judaism and easily made the transition. Others, perhaps, no doubt, were mostly Gentiles, who it was no big deal to them to eat certain food or have certain dietary restrictions or observe certain days. In other words, They were strong in faith because their conscience, it was fully informed by the freedoms they had in Christ in the new covenant. And just note that the weak brother, he's not a legalist. We might be tempted to think that, oh, he's just a legalist. No. How do we know that? Because notice in verse 1, Paul says, Welcome him. The weak brother isn't adding to the gospel. He's not like the Judaizers in Galatia, if you remember, who Paul condemns for preaching a false gospel. No, no, this brother, he understands justification by faith alone. He isn't a legalist. So what's the issue? Here's the issue. He believes that by abstaining or by keeping, it honors God best. It honors God more to abstain than to partake. Verse 6. The one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. It's all done for the honor of the Lord and the glory of the Lord and the praise of the Lord. Well, on the other hand the strong brother he sees his freedoms as, in Christ as an opportunity to honor the lord to give thanks to the lord look there verse 6 the one who eats eats in honor of the lord since he gives thanks so what then is the real issue here the issue here is what we might call matters of the conscience Verse one, Paul calls them opinions. These would fall under the category of Christian liberties or secondary issues. These these aren't gospel issues, these aren't matters of first importance. No, in fact, these are issues on which listen scripture is either silent or it is gray. I'm not talking here about clear commands. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. No, no, the issue here are things neither commanded nor forbidden by God. Issues about which Christians, listen, are free in Christ either to do or not to do based on one's convictions and conscience. And I want to be pastorally sensitive here. And I'm tempted just to give you a list of what I think these might be. But I'll let someone else do that for you. In their book, Conscience, what it is, how to train it, and loving those who differ, Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley offer this list. Matters of the Conscience. Should Christians watch mixed martial arts? Should Christians watch TV at all? How much? How about listening to secular music? How to treat Sundays, dressing modestly, dressing up for church, global warming, politics, watching particular movies or TV shows, reading Harry Potter, wearing makeup, Methods of parenting to spank or not to spank. Should we vaccinate our children? Should we not? Public school, private school, homeschool, eating fast food, gun control, music styles in the church, body piercings, tattoos, smoking, drinking, debt, dating. When should a married couple start having kids? How many kids should they have? Being overweight. Should we sell certain should we celebrate certain traditions around Christmas or Easter? Should we celebrate the fourth of July? Or Halloween? but let's not get controversial here. I mean, these can be controversial issues, right? Issues over which many of us perhaps have strong convictions and we have differing convictions. And so, here is a church where, where you've got the weak and you've got the strong, and so I just, I just want you to feel with me here the the tension that this kind of thing can cause in a church. I just want you to sense and perceive with me the difficulties and problems that this could cause in a local church. In fact, we see the difficulties and problems it caused in this church. Look there again, verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise The one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. The issue here was that matters of the conscience, opinions, as Paul calls them in verse 1, were causing disunity and division in the church. Apparently, the strong were despising the weak, and the weak, notice, also were passing judgment on the strong. And listen, both were wrong. Verse 3, that word despise, it has the idea of disdain or condescending judgment. NIV translates it, look down on. So you you can just imagine here the the strong thinking. Those weak-minded Christians with all of their oversensitive consciences, when will they just get it? I mean, we're the enlightened ones. Well, on the other side of the church, you've got the weak, verse 3, passing judgment on the strong for partaking or not observing we we are the truly spiritual ones how can those people be christians and do that this was the issue and it was ripping this church apart so then what will paul do what's the solution is the solution to create two different churches? You got the carnivore church and you got the vegetarian church. Is that the solution? Is that the answer? Or will Paul say to the weak brother, get over it and just eat it? Or will he say to the strong to stop eating, stop drinking, and start observing? Is that what he does? No. In fact, Paul's answer it is much, much more compelling. It is much more supernatural. It is much more shaped by the gospel. Which leads to the second question. What is Paul's solution for the weak and the strong? What's the solution for how the weak and the strong are to relate to one another in this church? How do we respond to each other amidst all of our diversities and differences over over secondary issues, over matters of the conscience where we might disagree. And I see here that Paul gives us two overarching commands. First one is in verse 2, which you might expect. The second is found at the end of verse 5, which I didn't expect at all. So what's the solution? How how can there be unity in our diversity? Well, notice command number 1. We welcome one another. Verse 1. Instead of verse 3, despising and passing judgment on one another, that's the negative command. Rather, notice verse 1, we welcome him. That's the positive command. And and you see it again down there, chapter 15, verse 7. Welcome one another. We, We are to welcome, we are to accept one another in the church. We don't just tolerate one another's differences. No, we receive with open arms one another warmly. With brotherly affection. Paul is saying that we build our fellowship together within the church on something other than these secondary, non-essential matters. And notice notice here the disclaimer in verse 1. But not to quarrel over opinions. Meaning, meaning that the strong and the weak are to welcome one another, vice versa. However, he says don't welcome them into endless questionings and debates and arguments over non-essential issues. Now, Paul isn't saying here that we should never have a discussion over matters of the conscience. But what he is saying is that these are not, listen, these are not the basis of our unity in the church. And so we welcome one another. And this is what I expected Paul to say. However, what I didn't expect him to say is what he says there at the end of verse 5. Notice the second command. Command number two, we must be fully convinced. Verse 5. Verse 1, he says, we welcome one another. We don't fight over opinions, but, but... Verse 5, each one needs to be fully convinced in his own mind. Did you see that coming? I didn't see it coming. On the one hand, Paul is saying, welcome one another. Don't fight over non-essentials. While on the other hand, he says, as it relates to these non-essentials, have a deep, personal conviction about them. Be fully convinced convinced in your own mind. I didn't expect that. Why? Because it would seem that if Paul wants the weak and the strong to get along in the church on these matters, if, if he wants them to welcome one another and not to quarrel over non-essentials and matters of the conscience, instead he would say something like lighten up. Get over it. Don't sweat the small stuff. Guys, it would seem, he might say, don't take a firm position on these issues. Don't have an opinion for the sake of unity in the church. But that's not what he says. No, instead in verse 5, he says, have a strong, deep, firm, personal conviction about them. Now, why would he say that? Well, because as we'll see next week, notice down in verse 14, about this issue of eating meat, Paul is going to say it is unclean for whoever thinks it is unclean. If your conscience tells you it's unclean, it's unclean. Or verse 23, notice what he'll say, chapter 14, whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from Faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Meaning, if your conscience tells you it's wrong, it is sin for you to do it. And therefore, verse 5, be fully convinced in your own mind. Now, he doesn't mean that our consciences are always right. They need to be informed. Maybe they need to be changed and calibrated. But Paul is saying, take a firm stand on these issues. Know where you stand on these matters of the conscience because if you don't act on them in faith, you're sinning. And so just imagine here that Paul, he envisions a church He envisions a a community of diverse and different people with with differing backgrounds and opinions and convictions and customs and cultures who have firm convictions about things, opinionated people who who aren't wishy-washy about their convictions, who don't see them as irrelevant or unimportant, and yet at the same time they are able to welcome one another warmly with open arms in the body of Christ. And listen, my friends, that is powerful. That is compelling. That is supernatural. Because what binds us together is not our agreement on differences, but our unity that we share together in Christ. And I think this is very informative our own church. How so? Well, I think it's informative for our own church on a few levels. Here they are. Number one, it's informative for Second Baptist Church on a corporate level. Biblically, we must be a church where on an individual level, we have personal, firm convictions about non-essential matters. However, on the corporate level, listen, what unites and unifies our church is the gospel. We are unified on the big things, and therefore it enables us, then, verse 1, to welcome one another on the small things. On another level, though, it also is a small group level. This fall, Lord willing, we will launch our small group's ministry, meeting in homes, Sunday evenings, caring for one another, ministering to one another, applying, discussing the word of God together. And it's only a matter of time before one's own opinions and convictions begin to come to light, right? So how do we handle that situation? Here's how we welcome one another. We welcome one another. We don't quarrel over opinions. We remain fully convinced in our own minds, our consciences being informed by the word of God and at the same time we receive one another warmly and gladly amidst all of our differences and when that happens in a small group, listen, when that happens in a church, it will thrive. It will sing the gospel. But it also, I think, has bearing on an individual level. Believer in Christ, listen, to to my strong brother or sister, to my weak brother or sister, you must be fully convinced in your own mind where you stand on these issues. And yet at the same time, show love and acceptance toward those in the church with whom you differ. So let me just give us a few, I think, heart-probing questions here in developing our own convictions about these issues and yet also doing it in a spirit of love and unity and we'll add to this list next week but here are just a few heart-probing questions to consider write these down if you can am i an opinionated person who likes to share those opinions for the wrong reasons i'm not saying don't be opinionated But do you do them for the wrong reasons? To show how smart you are? To stir up controversy because you like it? Or to force them on other people? The second question is, then, do I enjoy talking more about secondary issues or matters of first importance? Are your conversations with people in the church more about controversies or Christ? Third, in thinking through these matters of the conscience, it's good to ask myself the question, am I fully persuaded that this is right or is my conscience telling me it would be wrong to do this or not do this? Am I fully persuaded in my own mind, or is there any doubt? Which I think leads to the last question then and I think this is the most important one: Can I do this thing for the glory of God? Can I do it in celebration of my freedom in Christ with thankfulness and gratitude and worship toward God? And I I think if you allow those questions to guide you here, it will not only firm up your own convictions, but it will reveal your heart toward others in the church. And so I think you begin to see here Paul's solution, that both the weak and the strong They are to welcome one another, and yet they are to remain fully convinced in their own minds, and this is how they stay together. This is how they remain unified, even among all of their diversity. But the question I think we still need to answer is, okay, why? Why are we to do this? And in the rest of the passage, Paul gives us the reasons why. And church, we need to see these reasons. I'll give them to you very briefly. There are five of them. Because I think, I think if we see these reasons of why we should do this, it is only going to fuel our desire and our ability to remain firm in our convictions and yet at the same time to welcome one another in the church. To, to be the kind of church that God wants Second Baptist Church to be. So what or excuse me, why are the weak and the strong to welcome one another? That's the third question. Why are the weak and the strong to welcome one another? Five reasons. Here they are. Number one, reason number one, because all of us have been welcomed in Christ. Look there, verse three. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for... God has welcomed him. The greatest reason, the most foundational reason that we are to welcome one another in the church is because, beloved, God has welcomed you. In grace, God welcomed us. Both the weak and the strong. We were justified before God by faith alone. Not on the basis of works. Not on the basis of abstaining or partaking or what you believe about certain issues. But we were welcomed, listen, solely on the merit and basis of God's grace. And at the same time, the same God that welcomed you based on nothing that you had done, welcomed them. And therefore, how dare We reject someone that God Himself has accepted. And so we do it because we've been welcomed in Christ. Reason number two. Reason number two is because all of us have a master. Look there, verse four. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Master here is, of course, Christ. Verse 14, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the master, and it is the master who tells his servants what to do and what not to do. Sort of be like if I were to walk in the medicine shop tomorrow, and I were to begin ordering around all of the employees, telling them what to do, and what not to do. What, what would Eric Black say? Who do you think you are? Right? Why? Because I'm the boss. I'm not saying here that any of his employees would say that he's the master and they're the servants, right? All analogies sort of break down, but you, you get my point here. And by the same token, Paul is saying, verse 3, when we despise one another or we pass judgment on one another, verse 1, when we quarrel over opinions, we are acting as though we are Lord of the church. Listen, the weak and the strong, they have a master and it isn't you, it's Christ And so in matters of opinion, what we do is we let God be God and we just welcome one another and we trust that Jesus is a better master than you or I. And so we have a master. Reason number three though, notice, because all of us are seeking to glorify God. Now notice here, oh this is so interesting. Notice in verses six to nine how generous Paul is here to both sides, to the weak and to the strong. I mean, I think this is such a model for us, isn't it? Paul is so generous here to assume that both groups are doing what they're doing for the glory of God. Look there again what he says, verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Both, Paul assumes, are doing it for the glory of God. One observes a day for the glory of God. One eats for the glory of God. One abstains for the glory of God. They are both doing it for the glory of God. And in verses 7 and 9... Paul shows here that 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 principle, it doesn't just apply to dietary issues or certain days. No, it applies to all of life, every choice in life. From life to death, Jesus is Lord of the living and the dead, and therefore every decision that we make in life should be to the glory of God. Does this help me bring glory to God? And as a side note, just notice what that implies. Implication number one, then, is that within the church, rather than being quick to judge, wouldn't it be amazing if we just all gave each other the benefit of the doubt? Instead of assuming the worst. That before I judge you on your motives or decisions on secondary issues, what if I were to ask myself, what if what they're doing, they're doing for the glory of God? That their own conscience in this matter, they believe will bring God the most glory. Brothers and sisters, how would that change our relationships with one another in the church? And another amazing implication here of that is, this is incredible, that it is possible that the weak and the strong can hold different convictions on disputable matters and both of them bring glory to God. That the one who eats can bring glory to God as well as the one who abstains. That both can do it with the same motivation because it's all about the glory of God. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God because it's all about bringing Him the most glory. And the final reason, excuse me, two more. Reason number four. I got worked up, is because all of us will be judged. Look there, verses 10 to 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For, notice the reason why, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. The reason Paul says we should welcome one another without passing judgment on disputable matters is because we have a master in heaven and he alone is judge. And it's important to remember that Paul is speaking here to Christians. This is a judgment for believers. And this judgment It isn't only about deeds and actions, it's about motives. It's about intentions of the heart, even. And it's about whether or not we lived according to our own consciences and our own convictions. Brothers and sisters, how much different would our relationships with one another in the church be if we spent more time and energy contemplating our own judgment rather than our brother's? Because in these matters that we disagree, we should mind our conscience and we should let God be judged. We will do the welcoming. We'll let him do the judging. And the final reason, I think maybe the most glorious too, is because all of us will be made to stand. Look there again at the end of verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. In his same glorious letter, in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the judgment Paul describes here in Romans 14, it won't be a condemning judgment. Why? Verse 4, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Every believer will stand on the last day. Every believer will be upheld at the final judgment. Why? Because God is able to make him stand. The weak the strong, they will stand because of God's power, not because of their own power. They will stand not because of what they have done or what they haven't done. No, they will stand because they have been vindicated by God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and therefore, no matter where they stand on these issues, they will stand on that day. And therefore, we can welcome one another in Christ. And so, Second Baptist Church, let's be a church That is not built on non-essentials, but rather let us be a church built on what it is that holds us together. The acceptance that we have before God in Christ, that will keep us together, that will keep us unified, that will enable us to receive and to welcome one another, and that, my friends, will be compelling to the world this diverse group of people redeemed by the blood of Jesus can welcome one another. Oh my glory be to God. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing reality that we have been welcomed not because of anything we have done, not because of what we do or don't do, but because we are sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And you in grace through the cross have made a way where we can be welcomed into the presence of God Almighty. What a glorious, glorious reality. May that never become dull to us. And Lord, may it lead us as your people to extend that same Vertical welcoming that we have received through Jesus to one another in the church and thereby thereby, sh- thereby shine the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ that he has redeemed and welcomed and forgiven us. And may this church live and exist for the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, please, and sing, O Church, Arise.